Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Born to be Wild, as recorded by Steppenwolf, and written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Mars Bonfire. But before we get to our interview with Mars, Paul and I want to take a moment to look back on 2015 as we uh, kind of say goodbye to the first year of this experiment that we call the Songcraft Podcast. This has definitely been uh, an adventure, and, and there are so many moments from this past year, the, the very first year of this podcast, that I know we're going to uh, remember forever. And I, I think of just laughing our heads off over at Swamp Dog's house or being embarrassingly late to our appointment with Melissa Manchester or um, watching Mac Davis teach Paul the opening guitar lick to uh, In the Ghetto. Um, and just the opportunity to get to chat with people like Desmond Child or, or John O's, Jim Peterick, guys who literally wrote the soundtrack to our formative years. It has been uh, quite a ride in 2015. It has, and I, I would have to say that moment with Mac Davis <laughs> learning that riff was a, a big high point for me as well. Um, but as everybody knows, this show is all about celebrating the writers of great songs. And as we say goodbye to 2015, we also want to take a moment to say goodbye to some songwriters who passed this year. And unfortunately, we'll never have the chance to sit down and talk with them, but their music has left a lasting impression in the world. Yeah, it's true. The, the music community lost some amazing songwriting talents this year. And uh, we want to just briefly mention them and honor their contributions. And uh, maybe this is just a time to kind of reflect on the important role that, that great songs uh, play in our lives. And we're actually going to post more information about each of these writers on the blog page at songcraftshow.com. So be sure to take some time, uh, go find out more about them and, and explore their work. In January, we lost Andre Crouch, the father of modern gospel music. And, uh, you know, Andre Crouch was kind of an important figure to me. It was one of the first albums I ever heard was his uh, Live at Carnegie Hall record that my mother had on 8-track. Um, learned a lot of those songs. Uh, but, you know, he was an arranger, producer, and songwriter. He wrote The Blood Will Never Lose Its Power, My Tribute to God Be the Glory, and Soon and Very Soon. And even if you don't recognize those songs, you've heard his work because he collaborated with Stevie Wonder, Elton John, and Quincy Jones doing a lot of choral arrangements. Uh, you know, he did the choir for Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror and Madonna's Like a Prayer. Yeah, and, and you know, Crouch and, and Bill Gaither, who we spoke with earlier this year, are... Um, probably, I would say, the twin pillars of, of modern gospel music. Um, so the loss of Andre is a huge deal for that community. Yeah. Um, and at the other end of the musical spectrum, we also lost Kim Fowley, who uh, he's really best remembered as the, the controversial mastermind behind um, The Runaways. Right. Uh, but he also wrote songs for bands like The Birds and Kiss. He wrote for Alice Cooper, Leon Russell, and, and other folks. We also lost Irvin Drake in January. Um, he's a Songwriters Hall of Fame inductee. He wrote it was a very good year, and I believe had songs recorded by Duke Ellington, Billie Holiday, Diana Ross, Barbara Streisand, Elvis, and others. He was also the founding president of the organization that's now known as the Songwriters Guild of America. Uh, one of the writers that we lost this year was Rosemarie McCoy, and she was a groundbreaking um, female and African-American songwriter whose catalog includes uh, I Beg of You, which was recorded by Elvis Presley. Um, 
She wrote It's Gonna Work Out Fine by Ike and Tina Turner. And she was one of these writers who had her songs cut by uh, like Aretha Franklin, Nat King Cole, um, Eddie Arnold, Ruth Brown, James Taylor, um, so many legendary artists. Mm -hmm. And um, one of those unsung names in in songwriting history that it's worth uh, learning a bit more about. Um, My good friend Carol is a major Rod McEwen fan, so we were sad to learn of his passing near the end of January. And, you know, he was known as a singer and a poet, um, but his songs are recorded by people like Frank Sinatra, Barbara Streisand, uh, Dusty Springfield, Chet Baker, Johnny Mathis, Waylon Jennings, Johnny Cash, uh, all kinds of legendary singers. You know, you mentioned uh, our conversation with Swamp Dog earlier this year. And um, when we talked to Swamp Dog, he spoke a lot about his friend, soul singer Don Covey. And as an artist, Covey scored hits with his own compositions, Pony Time, Mercy Mercy, and Seesaw. But then he found success with other artists' recording of his songs. Everybody knows Chain of Fools by Aretha Franklin. And he also wrote Sookie Sookie by Steppenwolf. Yeah, we'll be hearing a lot more about Steppenwolf today. Right. Um, you know, another of those gospel greats that Bill Gaither spoke about during our, our interview with him um, was Mosey Lister. And he had been a member of the Statesman Quartet. Um, he wrote, How Long Has It Been? No, Where No One Stands Alone. Um, a long list of songs that were recorded by everybody from George Beverly Shea to Elvis. And uh, he passed away in February. You know, back in March, we lost a couple of Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame inductees. Wayne Kemp, whose first big hit was Love Bug for George Jones in 1965. He went on to write hits for George Strait, Johnny Cash, Conway Twitty, and others. And his fellow inductee, Don Robertson, who wrote classics such as I Don't Hurt Anymore, Please Help Me, I'm Falling, and 15 songs for Elvis. Oh, man. Please help me, I'm falling. That's the one. I love that song. Um, and he was actually, he, I think he spent most of his career living in Los Angeles, mm. even though he wrote a lot of these these big country hits. Um also, back in March, we lost Andy Frazier, and um, he actually started out playing with songcraft guest John Mayall, hmm. uh, but is best remembered as the basis for the band Free, and uh, he co-wrote their major hit, All Right Now, um, which then, I believe, our band in high school uh, <laughs> unwrote, if that's what you could call it, with our, our terrible performance of it. But that is one of those classic uh, rock yeah. songs that is just killer. And he actually also wrote um, Every Kind of People, which was Robert Palmer's first um, top 20 hit in the U.S. Yeah, maybe this could be our moment to formally apologize for our version of All Right Now. <laughs> yes. um, and if you don't know the band Free, um, it's it's uh, that band kind of went on to become Bad Company. So a yeah. lot of the original members, um, you heard a lot more hits from those guys later. Um, Sid Tepper and Roy C. Bennett are the songwriting team who wrote 43 songs for Elvis Presley, more than any other writer or writing team. And they also wrote Red Roses for a Blue Lady, Nothing for Christmas, The Young Ones, and Glad All Over, which was recorded, recorded by the Beatles. And others who recorded their songs include Tony Bennett, Peggy Lee, Frank Sinatra, Sarah Vaughn, and Dean Martin. Sadly, we lost Sid in April, and we lost Roy in July. The country music world took several hits in April. Uh, we said goodbye to Sandy Mason, best known for co-writing the number one Garth Brooks hit, Two Pina Coladas. Uh, Doug Gilmore, who joined forces with Mickey Newberry to write Jerry Lee Lewis's hit, She Even Woke Me Up to Say Goodbye, and also Nancy Montgomery, who penned three top ten country hits uh, in the 80s, including the top five single, The Gift, by the McCarters. At the end of April, we said goodbye to the legendary Ben E. King, and this is one of those voices 
um, that we've all heard. The former Drifter singer, he provided lead vocals for There Goes My Baby, Save the Last Dance for Me, and This Magic Moment. He's best remembered, though, for two solo hits that he wrote and performed, Spanish Harlem and Stand By Me. He worked really closely with Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, and, and Mike Stoller is going to be our guest on the next episode of Songcraft, and we're going to hear some memories about what made Ben E. King such an amazing writer and performer. Yeah, and then moving into May, I mean, that was a really uh, rough month for the R&B world as yeah. several luminaries moved on to the next life. Um, Errol Brown, the lead singer of Hot Chocolate, he wrote the 1970s classic You Sexy Thing. Um, I've been leaving miracles. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I did it justice. You did. Um, he actually also wrote uh, Brother Louie, which is the opening theme Louis, to Louis, uh, Louis, yeah, Louis C.K.'s TV show. Um, we lost B.B. King and, and you know, B.B. King did not write many of his best known songs, mm. but he did contribute original material to a number of his many albums. Yeah. And he's also a guy who adapted several blues songs into absolute classics. Um, so even just his arrangement style absolutely, uh, revolutionized yeah. electric blues music. Huge loss. Yeah. Um, and we also said goodbye to Lewis Johnson, who was the bassist for the R&B and funk group, The Brothers Johnson, and he co-wrote their hits, I'll Be Good to You and Stomp. Well, as we moved into the summer months, the music world lost Gene Ritchie, the Appalachian music icon, who became part of the Greenwich Village folk scene and helped establish the Newport Folk Festival. Her songs were recorded by Johnny Cash, Emmylou Harris, Graham Nash, and many others. And in perhaps the most eyebrow-raising loss of 2015, we said goodbye to former Warner Brothers Records country singer and songwriter Randy Howard, who died in a shootout with a bounty hunter in Lynchburg, Tennessee. Man, that is uh, that is very much the country <laughs> outlaw way to go. Jeez. Amazing. Um, others who passed on in June include Ornette Coleman, James Horner, and Chris Squire. Coleman was uh, an innovator of the free jazz movement, and he put out this... Uh, seminal album, The Shape of Jazz to Come, back in 1959, which established him as this very much respected experimentalist who kind of challenged the traditional boundaries of, of the jazz form. Um, and James Horner is, is a name that's familiar to uh, basically any moviegoer because he wrote the, the scores for more than 100 films. Um, but as part of that process, he actually collaborated on some classic pop songs from some of those films mm. uh, somewhere out there from an American tale and my heart will go on from Titanic, which was, I think one of the biggest selling movie, if not general singles of all time and really uh, an amazing uh, melody writer. You said Titanic. I'm not familiar with the film. Yeah, it was popular, uh, but you were, you were very young at the time. Okay. Um, well, Chris Squire was the respected bassist and he was a co-founder of the band. Yes. Um, we all know that band, and he co-wrote the group's big hits, I've Seen All Good People and Owner of a Lonely Heart. Um, in July, we lost Red Lane, the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame member who wrote Till I Get It Right for Tammy Wynette, and he had nearly 30 of his songs recorded by Merle Haggard, including the hit My Own Kind of Hat. We also bid farewell to Ernie Maresca, who is best remembered as the writer of Dion's biggest hits, Run Around Sue and The Wanderer. I was shocked to find out that Buddy Bowie passed away back in late July. Um... He's a name that's not a household name by any means, but he found early songwriting success with Roy Orbison um, and then went on to produce the Classics Four. Uh, and he wrote their major hits like um, uh, Traces and, and Stormy and Spooky. You know, crazy about a spooky little girl. Yeah. 
Um, and he actually went on to form the Atlanta Rhythm Section and, and mm. wrote the hits uh, So Into You, Imaginary Lover, uh, and, and so many others. Uh, I actually interviewed Buddy a couple years back for my book, uh, huh. Southbound, An Illustrated History of Southern Rock. And he was really a great guy. And I had, had planned to have him join us for an episode of Songcraft. In fact, I'd even sent him an email um, shortly before he died, but his email address had changed and it bounced back to me. And wow. I had made a note to call him. Um, and so I very much regret that we won't get the chance to have that conversation. Yeah, that is sad. Well, you know, uh, a conversation that we did have earlier was with our friend Spooner Oldham, and when we were talking about him, we learned a lot about the box tops, and their best-known hit, of course, was The Letter, which was written by Wayne Carson, who also wrote Always On My Mind. And unfortunately, we lost Wayne in July. Yeah, and then uh, in August, Country Music Hall of Fame member and, and legendary producer Billy Sherrill moved on. Yeah, we've heard that name a lot in these interviews, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, that guy, he wrote nearly 20 number one country hits, including My Elusive Dreams, um, Stand By Your Man, uh, Almost Persuaded, which won a Grammy, um, Till I Can Make It On My Own, and The Most Beautiful Girl were both CMA Song of the Year winners. Um, and, you know, I always dreamed of having Billy Sherrill as a guest on the show, but he was a very private guy. Mm. Um, but we were able to get a little bit of insight into his genius thanks to our conversation with Bobby Braddock, because um, Bobby was very close with Billy. And, and in fact, Bobby found his greatest songwriting success with um, with records that, that Billy produced, like He Stopped Loving Her Today and D-I-V-O-R-C-E. Um, and, and, you know, he had been retired from the music business for a good while, but the legacy he left behind is, uh, is remarkable. Yeah. You know, th talking through all these names and going through all, you know, this, this list of folks that we lost this past year, it, it makes you think about your own mortality a bit. And especially yeah. when it's somebody that you kind of grew up listening to. Um, and back in the fall, we lost Ario Speedwagon guitarist, Gary Richrath. He wrote their major hit, Take It on the Run. Um, and it's, it's sort of like, wow, Gary Richrath died. Yeah. That seems so young. Yeah. Um, also, Alan Toussaint died this year. He was a legendary New Orleans musician. He was producer, arranger, songwriter. He wrote classics like Fortune Teller, Working in the Coal Mine, Southern Nights. He also produced some unforgettable records, including Dr. John's Right Place, Wrong Time, and LaBelle's Lady Marmalade. Yeah. Oh, in November, we lost the highly respected singer-songwriter P.F. Sloan, who found his greatest success with others' recordings of his songs. Um, I'm thinking of Barry Maguire's version of Eve of Destruction. He also wrote uh, Secret Agent Man for uh, right. Johnny Rivers. Um, in that same month, we had to say goodbye to Ted Harris uh, with hits including Dottie West's Paper Mansions, um, The Country Standard, Crystal Chandelier. Harris earned introduction into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame and definitely made his mark in the country genre. Yeah, you know, we talk about uh, being affected by deaths of these writers and musicians and, you know, people we grew up listening to. And, man, this month, to see Scott Weiland from Stone Temple Pilots pass yeah. away, uh, you know, you, you can't say that you were necessarily shocked um, because of the troubles he'd been through from time to time, but still really saddened by it. Yeah. Um, he was a lyricist for their biggest hits and, and, a, and a great melody writer, too, but these hits like Plush, Wicked Garden, Creep, Big Empty, Vaseline, Interstate Love Song. It, that reads like a soundtrack to my first year of college. Right. His first two Stone Temple Pilots record were go-to records for me. Yeah. But then he went on to form the rock group, uh, a super group, really, Velvet Revolver, where he collaborated with Slash and the other bandmates, hits like Slither and Fall to Pieces. Yeah, yeah, and I remember you and I actually had the, the chance to see 
Stone Temple Pilots in concert a few years back. Yeah. And I mean, there's no questioning the absolute magnetism that he had on stage. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it was very sad to hear about that. Um, and, and in early December, we lost two great Dons of Nashville songwriting, uh, Don Chappell and Don Femmer. Um, Chapel had been married to Tammy Wynette at one time and she recorded several of his songs. Um, but also people like Ray Price, uh, Eddie Arnold, Doug Kershaw did his stuff. And, um, George Jones, uh, actually did a version of Chapel's when the grass grows over me, which earned a CMA song of the year nomination back in 1969. Yeah. And Don Fimmer, I mean, a longtime Nashville songwriter earned 14 ASCAP awards writing such hits as Tim McGraw's all I want is a life diamond Rio's meet in the middle Lone Star's My Front Porch Looking In, a great song. Yeah. And Ronnie Millsap's She Keeps the Home Fires Burning. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you letting us take some time to honor the writers we lost in 2015. Fortunately for us, we'll always have the songs they left behind. But we turn now to honoring a writer who is very much still with us and likely will be for a very long time, thanks to a fascinating passion of his <laughs> that keeps him in great shape. Yeah. Which we'll hear about more in a bit. Canadian singer-guitarist and songwriter Mars Bonfire began his professional music career with The Sparrows, a 1960s rock group that eventually morphed into the band Steppenwolf. Though he'd departed by the time they released their first album, Steppenwolf made Bonfire's Born to be Wild a massive hit in 1968. The song was prominently used in the film Easy Rider the following year, cementing its place as a classic American anthem of free-spirited rebellion. The lyrics introduced the term heavy metal to the music world, and Rolling Stone magazine named Born to be Wild one of the top 500 songs of all time. Steppenwolf went on to record five additional bonfire compositions, including Faster Than the Speed of Life and Ride With Me. All Music called Mars's 1968 self-titled psychedelic solo album a lost masterpiece, and in 2015 he was honored with the first ever Cultural Impact Award given by the Society of Composers, Authors, and Music Publishers of Canada. In addition to Steppenwolf, Mars Bonfire's music has been covered by Alice Cooper, Wilson Pickett, Etta James, The Cult, Crowded House, In Excess, U2, Bruce Springsteen, and others. Mars, welcome to Songcraft. Thanks a lot, Scott and Paul. I'm delighted to be talking to both of you. Yeah, well, we are too. Um, so I want to dig back into your earliest beginnings. And you were born, Dennis McCrohan, in Oshawa, Ontario, Canada. And I understand that your father, Owen, ran a venue called the Jubilee that booked live music. Tell us a little bit about your dad and what influence his job had on your early musical development. It actually had a profound influence. He operated a ballroom or dance hall. And uh, from my earliest days, I remember going down there with him. And in the beginning, he would bring in uh, swing bands, uh, big band dance orchestras. Then later on, country and western, polka, and then finally rock and roll. And as a young kid, I got to hear all this stuff live, and it's so powerful live. Wow. So when I went to uh, college, the last thing my dad wanted me to be involved in was the music business because he knew <laughs> from inside out how unpredictable it is. And so I got interested in uh, getting a degree in uh, psychology. Mm. But during a summer break, I got involved in a local band. We were doing surf music. And somehow it just felt so right to be involved mm. in music. Yeah, I yeah. never went back to school. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, your your first serious band was Jack London and the Sparrows, which formed in early 1964 around the, the British singer Dave Martin, who changed his name to, to Jack London. And your brother, uh, Jerry, joined that group on drums as well. Um, talk about some of the steps that, that you guys took in those days to kind of project that British invasion image in, in the wake of the Beatles. Uh, pop music was utterly overwhelmed by the British invasion. Um we saw no point in just presenting ourselves as a, a Canadian band. So he actually had the goal to uh, tell radio stations and everybody that we had just come over from England. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> he changed his name, of course, to make it sound even more British, right. although he really, he really was a British. Yeah. But my brother and I changed our names because... My dad, being involved in the music business for decades and decades, he had built up friends, but also he had built up some enemies. That happens. And some of whom were booking agents. Interesting. So wow. they knew, if they knew we were his sons, we wouldn't get booked anywhere. Wow. 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 We still want to disguise that, you know, by changing our last names to Edmonton. That's great. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. That's as good a reason for a name change as any. <laughs> Yeah. Well, in late 1964, Jack London and the Sparrows landed a deal with Capitol Records and released a debut single called If You Don't Want My Love, which you co-wrote. If you don't want my love, if you don't want my chance, I'll get a girl who treats me better than you, and I'll love her, love her, love her, love her, with a love that'll never die. That song became a top five Canadian hit in 1965. Talk about how you first got into writing songs and what your process was like in those days. Um, at that time, um, I hadn't formally studied music, so I knew chords by feel on the guitar, but I couldn't recognize or write a note of music. Hmm. So I would strum on the guitar... Um, various chords until I got a sequence that, without any melody on top of it, sounded somewhat appealing, mm-hmm. and then that lib a melody. Yeah. And then the melody would suggest a mood that brought about the lyric. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. it always kind of started from a musical inspiration place that led you to a lyric or a concept. Right. In those days. Um, mm. Now, uh, it's the actual reverse. I'll start with a lyric. Mm. And then I'll create a melody in the mood of the lyric. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that first single that you guys did, uh, If You Don't Want My Love, it's got this really active bass line for a rock band of that era, which I I believe was played by Bruce Palmer, who left the group to join a band called The Minor Birds, while The Minor Birds' previous bassist, Nick St. Nicholas, came into Jack London and the Sparrows. Do I have that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to get too off track here, but I know that you guys were right at the center of that thriving 1960s Toronto music scene. And, and you know, that had kind of uh, Ronnie Hawkins had been there, whose who's backing group, the Hawks, was Levon Helm and Robbie Robertson and, and the guys who, who formed the band. Um, but, but the Minor Birds is a group that fascinates me. I know that they didn't actually put out any records, but they were signed to to Motown for a while, but the reason it fascinates me is because, from what I understand, 
Neil Young and Rick James were both in that same band, and that seems like a pretty yeah. unlikely uh, uh, combination to me. Well, <laughs> you know, that was, of course, the psychedelic 60s, the period of being dazed and confused. <laughs> that can harmonize a lot of uh, what would otherwise be dissonance or incompatibility. Right. <laughs> right. As we all know, Rick James became phenomenally successful on his own. Yeah. And it was clear in those early days that he was a performer. Sure, yeah. And finally, you know, he he got his just dues there of the success he deserved. Yeah, interesting. (laughs) Right. Well... You know, just as as a footnote, after the Sparrows and the Minor Birds, uh, Bruce Palmer would go on to form Buffalo Springfield with with Neil Young. So he's a pretty important uh, musician from that time. And and as we mentioned, once Palmer left the Sparrows, Nick St. Nicholas came into the band, and you guys recorded another single, um, "I'll Be the Boy," followed by a, a Canadian top ten, "Our Love Has Passed." strong kind of Beatles influence in those songs and and you know they definitely sound of that time and and reflect what was happening but what were some of the the influences that were shaping you as you were becoming a songwriter Uh, for that period it was the British sound the Beatles Dave Clark Five all those bands, which were a little more melodic and had a few extra chords in their songs right. than what I was used to mm-hmm. uh, in the 50s, with like Elvis Presley and so on, where basically everything was a three-chord uh, song, roughly yeah. based on a blues pattern. Yeah. So this slight expansion of the musical world uh, drew me in, and... Um, I, I learned basically the chord patterns they were using, and mm. uh, similar melodies just uh, appeared on top of those chords. Mm. Yeah. Well, after you guys continued on with a, a handful of successful singles, uh, Jack London and the Sparrows released an LP, which featured primarily songs that you wrote solo or co-wrote with Jack. But then London left the band before 1965 was through. What happened that caused that split? Basically, it was a mutual separation uh he wanted to stay strictly in the british sound the british invasion sound Mm. we were increasingly becoming more interested in the blues okay we decided to separate and Mm. for a while we just continued as the sparrow right i wonder uh when you said you were studying psychology i thought ah that could actually be pretty applicable in a band setting if you kind of understand psychology, you know, <laughs> when you watch kind of members come and go. <laughs> well, basically, all bands are a collection of nutcases. <laughs> and the more successful they become, the worse it gets. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. Well, after Jack departed, the Sparrows carried on and released the single Hard Times with the Law, which you co-wrote with your brother Dennis. 
And despite the changes in the band, the single hit number 13 on the charts. In what ways did kind of losing the band's front man affect your approach to writing songs for the group? Now we had to um, somewhat modify our songs. Now, Jack London had a decent voice, a mm. good range. Um, now we're left with me singing occasionally and my brother singing occasionally, and we had never sung before. Mm-hmm. So both of our ranges were fairly limited, yeah. and our ability to express uh, a lyric, which, mm. you know, a front man, they just have that all down by nature. Yeah, right. Songs got a little more uh, limited in range and so on, mm-hmm. but ultimately this worked to our favor because essentially what we were now doing was just singing uh, blues or rock right, versions. Right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, but we're still playing in this Yorkville village area with all the coffee shops, and now John Kay, the um, lead singer of Steppenwolf, he, as a solo performer, was playing a few uh, doors down at another coffee shop, and he would come after his set and hear us, and we would go and hear him. Right. Okay. And we the sense, now that we were doing a simple three-chord, basically, type of music, that was his forte. Mm, yeah. And we were all uh, pretty well locked into our instruments and not really front people. Right. But he's the front person, yeah. so we just merged together. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I know that you guys relocated to, to New York in 1966, and by that point you were just known as The Sparrow and, and signed a record deal with Columbia. Um, how did that come about? We met a producer who I guess was a staff producer for Columbia in New York. Dave Kaplick, I think was his name. And... Uh, he had, was producing, like, jazz singers and stuff like that, but because of the dominance of rock, he decided to um, spread out into that field. Right. And we were playing at a club called Arthur's in New York, and he heard us there and um, did some demos with us, and then that got us the deal. Wow. Well, your first single for Columbia was a song uh, that you wrote solo called Tomorrow's Ship. Tomorrow's Ship. They released that song and then another single, uh, Green Bottle Lover, um, but neither charted at the time. So the, the label did not re- release the album that they had recorded with you guys until later after Steppenwolf became successful. Um, but in the fall of, of 1966, The Sparrow relocated to the West Coast, uh, playing you know in L.A. and San Francisco. Um, talk a little bit about that legendary California music scene of late 1966 and moving into 67 and, and the summer of love and just sort of what it was like to, to be a part of that. That was overwhelming for uh, somewhat naive guy like myself from Canada. <laughs> I mean, New York was strong enough, but um, the, the California social scene at the time was so 
expansive. It seemed like anything was possible and anything mm. could happen. And, of course, we got deeply involved in the psychedelic culture, right. way more than we had been before. Um, and in my, in my case, to the point where I, I just had to leave the band when they were on the verge of success. Wow. Huh. I didn't know if I was going to jump out of, of a window and think I could fly or what was happening. <laughs> oh, wow. I was really to totally lose my mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about that, because it's around this time that, that Sparrow kind of formally broke up, but then a few of the guys formed this new band, Steppenwolf, and, and you opted out, even though you'd been the primary songwriter. So it seems like the, the music was still compelling to you, but the lifestyle was getting a little too heavy, maybe? Yeah, it was definitely from, you know, the whole concept behind psychedelics goes, um, I guess, back to the tribal period in the world when there were shamans. And they would maybe take some kind of mind-altering um, drug hmm. a few times a year to have visions and help the tribe move forward. Right. But during the psychedelic 60s, people were taking this stuff literally daily. Wow, right. And they went way beyond the point where it might do some good to the point where it was actually destroying them. So that was the uh, realm into which I was going into. Yeah, and. Yeah. To some extent, the other guys in the band, so that's pretty well why we felt we had to break up and just kind of clear our hands. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, luckily, John Kay, by chance, uh, got an apartment right next door to a staff producer at Dunhill Records. Huh. Oh, well. And the guy, the producer, Gabriel Meckler, happened to hear through the apartment wall, John playing his guitar and singing and told him, oh, if you can get a band together, I'll see if I can get <laughs> wow. you a deal with Daniel. So John called us all up uh, to see if we'd like to get back together. And most of the other guys were ready for it, but I wasn't, so mm. I didn't even get involved. Oh, uh, interesting. Um, uh, based on uh, some demos they made, Gabriel was able to get them a deal with Daniel. I gotta ask you, that, that apartment that you mentioned, was that was that in up in San Francisco or was that in, in Los Angeles? In Los Angeles, yeah. I remember it was on Fountain Avenue, which runs right. parallel to Sunset Boulevard. Mm, yeah. Uh, here, here's a just bizarre story. I have a friend who uh, lived on Fountain Avenue. This is about 10 years ago. And she was <laughs> in her apartment one day and somebody knocked on the door, a stranger, and she opened the door and the person said, I'm really sorry to bother you, uh, but I'm a big Steppenwolf fan and John Kay used to live in this apartment and I just wanted to see it. <laughs> and she she had no idea that John Kay had ever lived there. Uh, and she and the, the fan was sort of saying, oh, I'm sure people drop by all the time and bother you. And she was sort of like, oh, this is the first I've heard of it. So it was, <laughs> it was funny. Uh, so I actually know that apartment. Wow. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, you know, I would assume that would be quite an obscure thing. <laughs> right, yeah. I'm somehow know this, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, well, it was around this time that, that Dennis Edmonton uh, became Mars Bonfire. Uh, where did you come up with that name, and what did that identity shift mean for you? That is 100% the result of the psychedelic experience. <laughs> You know, people ask me all the time, how'd I come up with a name? I have no idea. I just, uh, I woke up one morning and thought, I'm Mars Bonfire. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> That's great. Wow. Um, 
Well, Uni Records released your self-titled debut LP in 1968. Uh, you were, you know, sort of became this solo artist at the time that Steppenwolf was coming together. Um, and, and that record featured your version of the song for which you've come to be known, uh, Born to be Wild. So tell us about how you got the idea for that song. I did not have a driver's license, so I was all basically all I saw would be the inside of our apartment, the inside of the nightclub where we played, and a few restaurants. Hmm. That's you know, that's all I knew of uh, Hollywood. I didn't know anything about Greater LA. So finally, I get my own car. And I drive out to the beaches, I drive up to the mountains, out to the desert, and I'm just thinking, wow, this is such a fantastic place with incredible diversity, literally within an hour from one place to the other. And that inspired the line, get your motor running, headed on the highway. Yeah. And um, because all these, especially up in the mountains, is such a natural setting, that's where the line about a true nature's child mm-hmm. climbs so you know, is up yeah. there. Some of the highway, too, going through the mountains gets over 5,000 feet high. Right. Wow. And, and uh, you know, that's such an iconic guitar riff, Born to be Wild. I mean, the, the, the rhythm of it in particular, you know, it's instantly identifiable. But it sounds like this might be around the point when your focus shifted to kind of starting with a lyric and concept and then bringing the music in later. How did that work on this song? One fellow I was particularly fond of is John Hammond, Jr., Hmm. and uh, I learned a lot of his riffs, along with other guitar players' riffs, and then I would mix a little bit of one riff with a little bit of another riff, and then maybe play a part backwards and all that kind of stuff. Right, Uh, right. And finally, that resulted in the signature guitar riff for Born to be Wild. Yeah. And... uh, I had the riff independent of the lyric idea. The lyric idea came, as I said, while I was driving around. But um, at night, when I was back in my crummy apartment, I would just wail away on my guitar, and I had this riff gone. And then the, the lyric just started to flow along with the riff. And yeah. That was it. Well, and that, that song, you know, of course, was recorded by your former bandmates who had, had formed Steppenwolf, and that became the, the breakthrough hit for Steppenwolf. It reached number two on the pop charts in the U.S., number one in Canada. Um, how did you feel about the fact that that the song became such a massive hit for basically the band that you used to be in, when at the same time you were kind of pushing your own versions of your own songs with this artist deal that you had secured on uni? Yeah, um... The stuff that came out on Uni actually was not professional recordings. They were my songwriter demos. And uh, so they're much rougher versions, Mm. um, in the case of Born to be Wild, especially to what Steppenwolf did. And then when you add to that the fact that 
Um, I'm not a lead singer. Mm. Uh, I just barely sing well enough to get the idea of my song across. Yeah. I, I think part of me recognized that I was never meant to be a solo artist. <laughs> <laughs> I was meant to be a songwriter. Right. Right. So I was happy that Steppenwolf did the song and it became successful because that's the realm where I naturally belong, writing the songs mm. behind the scenes yeah. rather than um, trying to interpret the song and sing it. Yeah, yeah. When the, and that band was a pretty perfect vehicle for that song. Oh, they were ideal. Uh, you know, there's that concept about how things come together through luck, but not only did they have the right producer, Gabriel Meckler, but they found the right studio, American Recording Studio. At that time, most studio engineers did not want a distorted sound. Right. Uh, it was all analog recording. Once they saw their, their level needle move into the red, you know, they would turn down the volume. Right. But in American, they were comfortable with that full fall uh, of distorted sound. Yeah. And that became a signature sound for so many bands from around that time. Yeah, yeah. Well, once Steppenwolf became successful, Columbia finally decided to release that Sparrows album that they had in the can, and you wrote several of the songs for that record, including Down Goes Your Love Life, Chasing Shadows, and others. But, of course, you had moved on by the time it saw the light of day. Were you pretty happy to finally see that album released, though? Um, well, <laughs> somewhat, but not entirely, because we, uh, me as an individual, and then, of course, the guys who formed the Steppenwolf, we all realized we had moved so far beyond that right, um, right. that we no longer really related to it as right. this is us or this is me. So it was interesting that it finally came out, but it was also <laughs> somewhat embarrassing. Right. You know, it no longer represented us. Right. <laughs> right. Well, your self-titled album was actually reissued by Columbia in 1969 with a, a different title and, and track listing. Um, and the first single that they put out was Lady Moonwalker. I think that song illustrates well that you were going for this sort of psychedelic vibe that was kind of different from the the hard rock sound that, that Steppenwolf was doing at the time. And, you know, as you've said, you didn't think of yourself as being in, in competition with those guys because you were primarily um, thinking of yourself as a songwriter. And, and that song, Lady Moonwalker, is one that um, was actually recorded by Joe South on his 1971 album, uh, So the Seeds Are Growing. Um, how did he wind up getting his hands on that one? You know, I have no idea. I guess he heard the album somewhere, but I I can tell you I was really thrilled that he decided to record it because he's a top-rated songwriter. Yeah, With yeah. great melodic development and an excellent singer. Mm. So in other words, from my perspective, I'm thinking there's really no need for him to have done this because he could easily have just written his own song. It would be better <laughs> than that. Right. <laughs> I, I really felt great that he did it. I, I never did promote myself much, you know, so hmm. uh, I guess I failed 
<clears throat> to take advantage of the fact that based on Born to be Wild, I, I might have been able to um, get other groups to record stuff and so on had I been mm. a little more aggressive, but I was just kind of off there in my own world writing songs. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steppenwolf's sophomore album, The Second, came out in, in 1968, and uh, Magic Carpet Ride, of course, was the, the best-known single from that release, but um, the album opens with a cover of your song, Faster Than the Speed of Life, which was actually also the title that Columbia gave your album when they re-released it. Is that something that you sort of pitched to the guys in Steppenwolf and said, hey, how about this one? Or is that something that they just heard on your record and said, hey, we're going to cover that song, too? It was just one of several demos I had done. And uh, when they were getting ready to record the second album, they once again asked me if I had any material. And um, I think I presented about five songs to them. And they liked that one enough to do it. And um, interestingly enough, um, my brother Jerry, the drummer, sang the lead on it, uh, rather than John Kay. Right. Uh, some bands were known for uh, having switching lead singers. Right. Um, so I, I assume, I, they never told me this, but I assume that at least for that album and maybe a few others that followed, they were kind of thinking, oh, maybe different people will sing different leads. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. Then we think we finally realized that the only person who should be singing is John Kay. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Well, in in 1969 and 1970, Steppenwolf released three more albums, none of which had any of your songs on them, and then suddenly in 1971, they included three of your compositions on uh, the For Ladies Only album, which were uh, The Night Times For You, Ride With Me, and Tenderness. She laughed and said, you'll go through hell, you'll live in rooms I know, and watch for my love. And all three of those songs had been included on, on your own album, which was, as you said, a kind of a collection of demos. So... By that point, Steppenwolf had, had basically covered half your record. Um, what brought them back to, to those songs after not mining the, the Mars Bonfire catalog for, for several releases? I'm not sure, but those uh, three songs were part of the original reel-to-reel tape that I presented them that had Born to be Wild. Uh-huh. So, so they were aware of those songs right from their very first album. Right. I guess um, they didn't resonate with them enough mm. to record them until later on. Yeah. Huh. I guess in, in some ways that's kind of like an, uh, a good patience lesson. You know, <laughs> if, uh, if the band doesn't cut them the first time, they're still there. They might grab them the next time around. Yes, yeah. Um, well, Steppen, Steppenwolf issued Ride With Me as a single, which appeared on the Billboard chart in 1971. But that song also cropped up in a few other places. It was the first single from your self-titled album, but it was under the title Ride With Me, Baby. 
But then it was also used in the film Diary of a Mad Housewife, as performed by Alice Cooper. I'd love to know how it became included in that film. Wow, I, I, I wish I knew. That is so fascinating. <laughs> but I always wondered, why did Alice Cooper, who could write a better song than that, you know, uh, in 10 minutes, uh, why did he bother to do that song? Why didn't whoever was in charge of the, of the movie just say, Alice, write your own song? Hey. But again, I'm so grateful he did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's cool. Um, well, I want to ask you about cult pop rock impresario Kim Fowley, who wrote songs for the birds and Kiss, but is probably best known as the controversial mastermind and manager of the Runaways. Um, I read a, a 2012 interview with Kim where, where he said that the two of you were like brothers at one time. Um, and I'm curious how, how you guys connected with one another and, and what are some of the things that, that you worked on with him? I can't specifically recall the first time I met him, but in addition to songwriting, I was occasionally doing studio work as a guitar player. Hmm. And I, I think that's how I met him. So um, he hired me to play guitar on several things he was doing. And then for a while, we were just living in the same apartment for roughly a year. In fact, it was during that period that he put together um, the Runaways. And I remember some of the, the young ladies coming over to our place. And, and and you guys, I think you played on a, a Gene Vincent record that he produced, right? Yes, wow, what a thrill that was to meet mm. Gene Vincent. Um, when I was a, a kid in the 50s, he had that huge hit, <laughs> Bebopalula. Sure, right, yeah. And I remember buying that record, and I played it over and over and over <laughs> again, all in one day, just yeah. one play after another, until finally my mother came into my room, like, and wondered what was wrong with me. How could anybody listen to something <laughs> so repetitively? But I just thought he had the greatest groove going in that yeah. and the uh, greatest attitude in his vocal. So to finally meet him yeah. and uh, get to play on a session with him, and what a laid-back gentleman mm, he, cool. he was. Yeah. So he, you know, he realized that um, we weren't uh, a coordinated group um, focused on his style. It was just a hodgepodge group of musicians mm. throwing the meter for a session, and we all had our different strengths in terms of style. Yeah. But just, uh, you know, he, he didn't try to force us to go in a certain direction. He just let it be whatever it was and made the best of it. Wow. Yeah, yeah. You know, in, in, in 1975, Steppenwolf recorded yet another of your songs, uh, Caroline, Are You Ready for the Outlaw World? But, you know, they, of course never reached the kind of success that they had had with, with Born to be Wild. I mean, that song has obviously uh, taken on legendary status. It's been covered by Wilson Pickett, The Ventures, uh, Etta James, Crowded House, and Excess, The Cult, even bands like U2 and Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band have done it live. Um, so other than Steppenwolf's version or your own version, do you have a, a personal favorite? Well, my own version certainly isn't my, my personal favorite. <laughs> uh, the Steppenwolf version, and this is often the case, um, I'll use Light My Fire as an example. The Doors, of course, had the, the big hit with that. And then right. um, a year or so later, Jose Feliciano does yep. um, a totally different style. Yeah. And it's great. But there's something about the first version. You, know, mm. you just 
really get past that. Right. Um, I must say that I'll always love the Steppenwolf version the most. Yeah. But I've heard so many other great versions, and had there not been a Steppenwolf version to compare them to, I probably would think, oh, that's the one I love. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, you know, and that song will always be associated with the film Easy Rider, too, but it's it's one of those songs that pops up in movies, TV shows, commercials all the time. Has there ever been a, a use of that song that kind of surprised you? Well, in a way, they all do. Going back to Easy Rider, hmm. uh, the story I heard uh, is that up until that time, when a movie was made, they would hire... Uh, a movie composer to create the soundtrack right, for the movie. Right. And uh, I think it was uh, Dennis Hopper had the idea that they would just um, have the hits of the day would hmm. be the soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, so I'm so lucky I got in there. That totally surprised me. Yeah, yeah. Well. <laughs> you know, and uh, as Scott was listing all the people that had covered the song, I, you're probably the, the one writer that we've spoken to who's had a song covered by Ozzy Osbourne with Miss Piggy. As a duet, as well. <laughs> That's, that is a unique distinction. Well, you know, in the U.S., our best-known performing rights societies that represent songwriters are ASCAP and BMI. And in Canada, the equivalent is SOCAN, which is the Society of Composers, Authors, and Music Publishers of Canada. And, and because of what we're talking about, and, and this, you know, this song and its, its kind of broad cultural impact you received the first ever Cultural Impact Award from SOCAN in 2015. What did that honor mean to you? It got me back into songwriting. Um, well, let's say in the 80s, I totally let go of creating music, although mm. I was still quite an avid listener. Yeah. And um, SOCAN approached me for this event you just described. They were in uh, Hollywood, and they just said, oh, we'd love to get together, have lunch with you. And, you know, I thought that's all it was, so I go down and uh, meet them. And then they tell me about this award. Mm. But I had been so out of the music thing that they had some doubts that I'd even show up, you know, to receive it. So, <laughs> right. so uh, once they told me what it was, I said, oh, I'm, I'll be there. I'll be in Toronto wow. even if I have to hike up, you know. <laughs> the award, but... They were so great, you know, so supportive and enthusiastic um, that when I left Toronto and came back, I thought, well, I think I'll get back into songwriting. Wow, wow. Well, you said that, you know, you would go even if you had to hike all the way to Toronto. And I recently discovered that here in Southern California, you are are quite famous uh, for something that that has nothing to do with music. Um, the Sierra Club has a list of about 275 or so mountain peaks in the area, um, and you have hiked all of them uh, more than once. In fact, <laughs> quite a bit more than once. Uh, tell us tell us a little bit about uh, this other thing that that Mars Bonfire has become renowned for. When I was a kid, um, and back in Oshawa. My family lived outside the city limits uh, on a dirt road, and just to go to school, for example, I would walk about a mile um, on a dirt road to school, or if I wanted to shorten it, I'd cut through a farmer's field and walk along a creek. Then after school, to visit any friends, I'd also be out walking through the woods to get to their houses. So um, what I didn't even think of as hiking then was just a, a natural state of being. Mm. And then 
years later, um, when I moved from the Hollywood area where I was, for my focus on music, I moved up to the high desert Lancaster. I thought, gee, I need to get involved in some exercise. So I, I realized there's this uh, group, it's a section of the Sierra Club out there that does what they call conditioning walks. So I go on a few of them and they can tell that I'm loving it. So they say, oh, if you like this stuff, you got to go hike with 100 Peaks. Mm. So I start going on their hikes and I more than like it. I love it. I become obsessed with it. So I end up hiking five days a week. Wow. <laughs> that move through their list of peaks, you know, and uh, get up to 25 times. And I never got tired of visiting the same peak uh, because oh, wow. each visit is different. You know, one might be in the summer. I'm hiking in trail runners. One might be in the winter. I've got snowshoes on. Mm, yeah. All totally different experiences. So that was a great time of my life, the hiking and mountain bike. Yeah. Uh, and 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 just so that our our listeners don't don't miss the, uh, you said you did each of these twenty five times. We're talking about a list of peaks that's that's just a little shy of, of three hundred. I mean, we're talking about seven thousand or so summits here, right? Yes. Uh, wow. You know, when I look back on it now, especially now that I'm seventy two. I wonder, how did I ever do that? <laughs> but I was just so enthusiastic about it, and luckily I had the free time to hike five days a week, and then it starts to add up. Yeah. Well, you may live to about 120 because of it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so when, you, when you're out there uh, on, on those hikes, uh, do you take an iPod with you and, and listen to music, or do you just uh, listen to the sound of nature around you? I don't take any devices with me other than my cell phone simply because that's my camera. Right. Uh, but I'm constantly whistling or hearing melodies in my head or coming up with uh, lyric ideas. Yeah. And then when I get back to civilization, I'll put a rough thing down, uh, the voice recorder on the cell phone. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're, you know, what's funny is my wife, who is a a drummer and a singer and a songwriter, very much a, a big music fan as I am. Um, of of all the folks that we have interviewed uh, for this show, she was most excited when I told her we were interviewing you because she also is a member of the Sierra Club and is an avid uh, backpacker and, and hiker. So, uh, you know, she she uh, is is impressed by all the uh, musical accomplishments of our various guests but she was doubly impressed when she found out that that we were going to be talking to the uh, the hiking legend himself Mars Bonfire <laughs> so pretty uh, pretty cool <laughs> Yeah, hiking is wonderful. I just can't make any money at it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, fortunately, you wrote "Born to Be Wild," so yeah, that. Exactly. Uh, that <laughs> um, and, and you know, your accomplishments on the trail uh, caused me to kind of reevaluate the words of of that song. Like a true nature's child, we were born, born to be wild. We can climb so high. I never want to die. So you have certainly climbed uh, all those mountain peaks very literally, and and climbed a lot of uh, of peaks in terms of your your music career as well. So it's really been an honor for us to uh, to talk with you and and to hear about your your life and career. And uh, we thank you so much for for sharing some time with us today. Thank you, Scott and Paul, and all the best to you. Thank you for listening. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, 
visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft.